0: In August of 1981, bride-to-be Cynthia Jane Miller was gunned down in her own home on the eve of her wedding day. In January of the same year, Tracy Nielsen was found stabbed to death in her home on her 21st birthday. The cases aren't connected, but there are a few similarities. As the years went on, the cases grew cold, but both have seen renewed interest on the part of investigators and the public in recent years. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie and with me tonight is Allie. How are you, Allie? I am doing pretty good. How are you? I'm good, super busy as always. And before we get started, we kind of have a quick announcement in the in the realm of us being very busy. We won't have any episodes next week. It's our usual CrimeCon week off. We took it off last year as well. When we come back in May, we will be dropping some of our Thursday episodes. Basically, the Thursday extra episodes we've been doing, we'll still do them, but we'll only do them twice a month rather than weekly.
1: In a little peek behind the scenes, Charlie and I take turns scripting episodes, and our Thursday episodes were meant to be mini-episodes of around 20 minutes, but honestly, we like doing the longer episodes, both as listeners and as creators. So even when we have a short episode, like the Alberta Jones case or even today's episode, we end up pairing it with a second case to have a fuller episode. We try to keep our scripts tight and low banter, So our 30, 35-minute long shows, they're the result of hours of research, writing, and then rewriting.
0: By dropping down, we each only have to script three weeks out of the month, sometimes four if we have a fifth Monday. That gives each of us a week of breathing room to work on some of the bigger cases we like to work on in the background. And honestly, it gives us flexibility for life to happen. As a perfect example, this episode, I worked up to the wire to get it done because we have to record it early. I have to take a rather last-minute trip to visit my grandfather. He's 93 years old, and that's when we normally would record. We've had people ask us a million times, how do you work with your different time zones? It's hard. We have a very narrow window each week where we can record.
1: And we're constantly pushing it because of sick kids or extra activities or whatever else unexpected things family life throws at us. This one week will give us breathing room to let us take the time without falling behind. And in the months where we don't need that extra time, we might even be able to get ahead.
0: And we hope everyone understands why we have to do this. We are, but we're still giving six episodes a month instead of the four we did last year. So this is kind of our compromise For where we are right now in our podcasting. On to tonight's show. We're going to start with the unsolved murder of Cynthia Jane Miller.
1: At the time of her death, Cynthia was what I think could be described as a fairly conservative person. And I don't mean politically, though she may have been that as well. She was born in Beckley, West Virginia on August 2nd, 1954. She grew up playing piano, going to church, and she did well in school. When it came time for university, she attended the nearby Concord University. She first earned a bachelor's degree in education and then a master's degree in math. As an extension of her faith, she didn't drink alcohol and she never experimented with any illicit substances. She stayed close to home and she lived a very simple life. Cynthia was a math teacher at a junior high school, and her grandfather owned a house really close to the school that Cynthia bought from him in mid-1980. And this purchase was a positive in her life. In 1979, Cynthia had divorced from her first husband, Mark, and that had been incredibly difficult. Now, all divorces are difficult, even amicable ones. But in this case in particular, Cynthia was religious and she did not believe divorce on principle, but she made that difficult decision and part of moving on was buying her own home. Now this house had a basement apartment with its own entrance, and Cynthia rented it out to another young woman named Terry Boland.
0: Cynthia had also started dating again after her divorce, and she was engaged to an also divorced police officer named Gary O'Neill. They had set a wedding date for August 27th, 1981. Having both been married before, they opted against a big wedding and were just planning to go to City Hall to get married. This wasn't a The first date that they had set, though, they had a few dates to go to City Hall to get married, but Cynthia canceled them. She had expressed to a friend that she wondered if they argued too much or maybe they didn't have enough in common. Now, this is all very normal for anyone getting married to wonder about these things, get a little bit of cold feet, but it's even more so something that someone who had recently been through a divorce would feel but all indications were that she was going to keep this date. On Thursday, August 26th, the day before the wedding, everyone who saw her described her as chatty and excited about the wedding plans. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor before we get more into the timeline leading up to Cynthia's murder. This was an exciting week at my house. Our second Dispatch box came. If Solving Mysteries is your cup of tea like it is mine, take a stab at Dispatch. It's an interactive serial story that's delivered directly to your door. There's murder. There's romance scandal. This one story has it all. Once you open your delivery, you'll find yourself entangled in the strange disappearance of your closest childhood friend, who also happens to be suspected of killing his wife, a well-known heiress. You'll use physical clues that come in your box, there's details embedded online, and you follow these threads to deduce what is fact, what is fiction, and finally, the truth. This story will test your detective skills every month with new clues, clippings, objects, hidden websites, and each tale, unfolds over several deliveries with helpful clues in every box to uncover the truth we use it for our family game night you can do it by yourself dispatch has an online community of participants who are working together to solve the mystery if you're intrigued satisfy your curious mind with 50% off your first delivery go to breakoutdispatch.com/insight and use the code insight to subscribe today that's breakoutdispatch.com/insight code insight
1: Let's walk through Cynthia's Thursday. She spent the morning at the junior high school where she worked. School was set to open on August 30th, so she and a fellow teacher were at the school getting their classrooms prepped and decorated. Around noon, Cynthia left to go to a doctor's appointment. She went home after the appointment to do tasks around the house, and at 4pm she went to the warehouse where her father Francis worked to visit him, and she chatted to him about the plans for the wedding the following day. She was also having issues with her garage door, and she asked Francis if he could come by later and take a look at it, which he did, and he was able to fix the door. He left around 6.30 that evening. In addition to her job as a teacher and the extra income from the tenant in the downstairs apartment, Cynthia also sold Avon, and Avon is a direct sales company that focuses on beauty and personal care products. Cynthia had a bunch of orders to finish up, so she decided to focus on that for the rest of the evening. Gary came home around 7 while she was working on those orders. After being home for about an hour, he decided to head over to his parents' house to talk over the wedding plans for the following day. Even though they weren't doing a big wedding, their families were still attending and the couple wanted to make sure that everyone was clear on what they were expected to do and where they were expected to be and when, the usual pre-wedding details.
0: Cynthia was going to go with him on this visit, but she still had some of those orders to finish. She didn't want to leave them for the weekend. Imagine your honeymoon weekend and you're busy working on Avon orders. Plus, school was starting early the next week and she would be a lot more busy.
1: I'd say she was also nervous about the wedding and that was probably a good distraction from the pre-wedding jitters.
0: Yeah, and it just made more sense to stay in, finish this up, let Gary go to his parents. He had told her he expected to be home around 1130, and he left around 820. It was a 40 to 45-minute drive to his parents' house. At 830, the downstairs tenant, Terry Boland, arrived home. She had trouble with the lock for her door, So Cynthia had to open the door for her, but she did have her own entrance into the downstairs apartment. She didn't have to go through the house. At nine, Cynthia was trying to finish up her Avon orders, but had some issue with some of them. So she called her upline, the person above her who kind of acts like a manager, and they worked it out. They were on the phone 20 to 30 minutes. Terry had gone to bed at nine, and before she fell asleep, she heard someone she believes to have been Cynthia go down the stairs. They had a laundry room in the basement, and it was shared between the apartment and the upstairs house, and after she went down to the laundry room, she went back up the stairs.
1: Gary realised he was going to be at his parents' house longer than he expected, so he called Cynthia at 9.30 to let her know. She didn't answer, so he called her mother's house thinking that she may have gone over there. Cynthia's family all lived in Beckley, so it wasn't unusual for her to just pop over for a quick visit. She wasn't there, and her mother said she was probably out dropping off those Avon orders. He tried to call again later, and she still wasn't home. At 11.30, the time he was supposed to be home, he called once again, and when she didn't answer, he felt acutely concerned. As we said, she wasn't the type to stay out late, and she'd never went out late without telling someone where she would be, and she was expecting him to be home at that time. By midnight, he was making the 45-minute drive back home. He was worried enough that he did pull over to call the house just to see if she'd gotten home by then, and he couldn't stop worrying.
0: Meanwhile, another call was placed to the house, this time to the downstairs tenant. Terry's father was out when his car broke down at 11.35. He called Terry to see if she could come pick him up. She had already been in bed for a couple hours, but she got up, she got dressed, and headed out the door in just a few minutes time. And she reported she didn't see anything suspicious. When Gary got home, he saw Cynthia's car out in the driveway. And his first thought was she must have gotten home between the last time he called and when he got home. And he was relieved at first The porch light wasn't on, which he thought was odd that she would have turned that off knowing he wasn't home yet. It was so dark at their house, he had to use a lighter to see the lock well enough to put the key in. So uh, yeah, it was odd that she wouldn't have left the light on for him. Inside the house, just two feet from the door, Cynthia was lying face down, and it May have just been a surreal moment because Gary froze and he said when he did go over to her at first, he didn't even notice the blood. It wasn't until he touched her that he realized something was wrong, but he was a police officer. His emergency training kicked in. He rolled her over and tried CPR, but he realized then that it was too late. He called 911, but also attempted to resuscitate her while waiting on the ambulance It must have seemed like hours, but all of this happened in a matter of minutes, and the ambulance was on its way by 12.45.
1: There was a shocking lack of clues at the crime scene. Cynthia was wearing jeans and a t-shirt, so it didn't look like she had gone to bed and was surprised by an intruder. There were additionally no signs of a struggle or a break-in, which led investigators to believe Cynthia led her murderer in. Nothing from the house was taken, and when she was found, she was still wearing her jewellery, so robbery was ruled out. It was initially thought that she'd been beaten due to the extent of injuries to her face. The autopsy would show, however, that there was no trauma to the body outside from what the bullets had done. She had been shot four times, with two of those being contact wounds, and the other two being from less than two feet away. The gun was identified as a 25 calibre revolver. Cynthia did own a similar gun, but hers was found at the house and ruled out as a murder weapon. In spite of canvassing the area surrounding her home, the murder weapon was never found nor were there any other clues. The only witness of sorts was a neighbour who heard what he thought were four firecrackers around 9.30pm. He looked out to see where the noise was coming from. He could see Cynthia's home from his window, yet he couldn't see anything unusual. There is an additional report of an anonymous 911 call reporting shots or fireworks from the neighbourhood. Now, it's unclear between the reports if the neighbour was the one who called 911, or if this was a 2nd ear witness. A notable missing witness was Terry, who was the downstairs neighbour. The shots were loud enough that the neighbor across the street could hear them, but Terry reportedly slept through all of it. She said that all she heard that night was Cynthia going to and from the laundry room, or who she thought was Cynthia, and the phone ringing once.
0: And we're going to have to take a quick break right here for one more word from a sponsor. Hey guys, I'm really excited to tell you about this cool new show, and it's called This Sounds Serious. It's a new Cast Box Creation. It's written by the people behind Maximum Fund's Stop Podcasting Yourself, CBC's This Is That, and Panoply's Dexter Guff is Smarter Than You. It tells a fictional murder story that involves twins, cults, and a Florida weatherman. If you're a fan of true crime and comedy, then you're going to love this show. This is fake true crime. It delivers both on laughs and and on the story. The first two episodes are out. It's produced by Vancouver-based creative studio Kelly and Kelly. It stars Peter Oldring from Dexter Guff is Smarter Than You and Carly Pope from Arrow and Suits. The series moves beyond parody by telling a compelling serialized story. You can find This Sounds Serious wherever you listen to your podcasts or at thissoundserious.com. And listen through to the end of this podcast to hear a preview of this Sound series. Terry attempted to return to the house at 1 a.m. after returning from picking up her father. And she turned around and went back when she saw the streets swarmed with police and heard what had happened. She immediately moved out of the apartment saying she didn't feel safe there anymore. Police did a test where they fired a gun upstairs while officers were down in what was Terry's apartment, and they said the shots were very loud and found it unlikely that Terry would have been able to sleep through it. They have not named Terry as a suspect, nor has anyone ever given a motive for Terry to have murdered her landlord. Those who don't believe Terry was involved wonder if this really tells us that the time of the incident being set at 9.30 may be too early and that it possibly happened after Terry had left to go pick up her father. But this 9.30 timeline was set by several factors. One, the ear witness. Another was the time Gary first started calling Cynthia to try to get a hold of her. And yes, the calls Gary made were confirmed through phone records also the results of two autopsies. The first autopsy done was sent to another medical examiner for confirmation, and both agreed that Cynthia was likely shot around 9.30 and died within 30 minutes. In 1982, the case was sent to the FBI to develop a profile of Cynthia's killer, but the problem was there wasn't enough information for a detailed profile There was so little in Cynthia's life for victimology, and there was so little, by the way, of clues at the scene. But they did point out some deductions they made. One, they believed that Cynthia knew her killer very well and had recently rejected them. Four shots, including two contact wounds, struck them as overkill, which would be a sign of anger towards Cynthia. And that's where they get this idea of rejection. Second, they believed the murderer would be someone who had been interviewed by police in the course of the investigation because they were someone who would have been close enough to Cynthia. And the person would be genuinely distraught over this because the murderer would have been someone who did love her.
1: In 2001, investigators told the media that they had developed two suspects, One is someone who Cynthia knew, and the other is someone who knew Gary, and that the murder of Cynthia was a way to get back at Gary. They did not name names. They also said that modern forensic testing of old evidence had not provided them with any additional clues. A man in prison in California sent a letter to police giving them some information, though. They followed that lead to another witness, but that witness has since died. And that's the issue we face with all these long term cold cases. In 2017, Cynthia's case was chosen by a newly formed cold case team as their first case to re investigate. They chose it because they felt it was highly solvable. The initial investigators did a thorough job and there are active leads that they are pursuing. By releasing more information to the public, they're hoping someone will come forward. They feel confident the person who killed Cynthia has told at least one person, and that person is holding on to a devastating secret, and it's time for them to come forward. Both Gary O'Neill and Frances Miller have died not knowing what happened to their fiancé and daughter, respectively.
0: I find it really interesting that they picked this case as highly solvable because I look at it as having so little evidence, but it makes me think that whatever the initial investigators did pointed towards someone specific and that the cold case team just has to find one last piece that connects them maybe some more modern forensic testing but i f- reading about this case it sounds so unsolvable yet the cold case investigators are saying no this is very solvable this is one we can we can get the answer to which makes me think they already know the answer they're just trying to find that last piece.
1: I think that comes down to the, as I said, the initial investigators doing that thorough job collecting all the evidence they did have. We hear about other cases around this time where the crime scenes weren't locked down properly, that things were left behind, things weren't done. Evidence wasn't taken away just in case forensic testing did catch up, which it has. I think you're right. I think they do know who is responsible and they just trying to work out ways to make the evidence and their suspect match up, which I think by the sounds of it, there is a good chance that they can do that.
0: There is a $10,000 reward available in this case. And if you know anything about the murder of Cynthia Miller, you can call Crime Stoppers at 304-255-STOP, that's S-T-O-P, or visit CrimeStoppersWV.com. The second case we're covering tonight is the murder of Tracy Nielsen. Tracy was a young college student and newly married. She and her husband Jeff had met on a blind date her freshman year at Oklahoma State University, and they were inseparable immediately. They married not quite two years later, in August of 1980, ahead of the start of the school year, where they both transferred from Oklahoma State to the University of Oklahoma. They were living in Moore, Oklahoma, while they attended the University of Oklahoma. Tracy was a junior. She was majoring in physical therapy and had begun working with individuals with disabilities and really found her passion there. Jeff was a pre-med student, and he eventually became an orthopedic surgeon. On January 5th, 1981, Jeff spent most of his day in class. Meanwhile, Tracy didn't have classes, so she ran errands that morning and did housework. The only place I've seen it reported as to where she went was to the grocery store, which was in walking distance of the apartment. Neighbors reported seeing her arrive home before noon. Family members called her That afternoon, to wish her a happy birthday because this was her 21st birthday, but she never answered the phone. When Jeff arrived home after 5 p.m., he found Tracy's body on the bed in the master bedroom, covered in blood, and she was already dead. He ran out of the apartment and called 911 from a neighbor's house. Tracy had been stabbed numerous times in the neck and the chest she was found fully dressed in jeans and a plaid shirt. So similar to the scene at Cynthia Miller's house, there was no sign of a struggle or forced entry. In fact, Jeff said the door was unlocked when he got home. It appears, based on the scene, that Tracy was actually in the middle of ironing clothes when she was interrupted, possibly by a knock on the door.
1: Now, nothing was taken from the home except a 1 inch by 4 inch keychain with Tracy's name on it. It had a tortoise shell style background and her name was written on it in block letters. It's believed by investigators it was taken as a trophy and that the killer may very well still have it in his possession all these years later. Also, similar to Cynthia's case, Tracy led a very low risk lifestyle she was married to a man that she had dated since she was 18. She didn't participate in any risky behaviours and wasn't even in the area terribly long. Oklahoma State, where she'd spent the previous two years, is about an hour north of the University of Oklahoma. The time of death was estimated to be around noon. Jeff's alibi for the day checked out. He was in class And his instructors and classmates all account for him being there with no gaps or at least none long enough for him to have gotten home, brutally murdered his wife, and then returned to school undetected. One of the strongest pieces of evidence was a fingerprint found, but it has so far not been matched to anyone. At the time, Oklahoma didn't have an easy way to match fingerprints. It had to be done by hand using fingerprint cards. In 1994, Jeff and his family worked with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation to get funding approved to create an automated fingerprint identification system. This would become a massive database of fingerprints, so any evidence collected at crime scenes could be run quickly. Unfortunately, even with this new database, they've never gotten a hit on the fingerprint found at Tracy's murder. But thousands of other cases have benefited from this program.
0: In 2015, detectives working on the 30-plus-year cold case revealed two major pieces of evidence. One was that keychain with the name Tracy on it that had been taken from the scene. That piece of information was held back from the media at the time. The other piece of evidence was a ticket book that had been found near the crime scene. This book was for reports for cable trouble, the type of book a utility repairman would bring and fill out, though it wasn't branded with a company name, so it was unclear at the time if this was for cable as in cable television or telephone cable. After publicizing photographs of the book, it was determined to be the same or similar to the books that Southwestern Bell Telephone Company technicians carried.
1: The very last ticket filled out in the book was for Tracy's residence. The time indicated was 11:51 a.m., right around the time of the murder. The ticket was filled out and it also had the check mark that the work was completed. There are what appeared to be three letters in the lower left corner of the box for the employee name and the number 145. We will post a picture in the Facebook group if anyone's interested. I can kind of see Joe when I look at it, but I can also see Lou, but they could be initials and not an actual name. At the time of the crime, police checked with local utility companies and could not identify who the book belonged to. Now, it's possible it was stolen from an employee and used as a ruse to gain entry to Tracy's home. If that's the case, it doesn't matter what name is scrawled at the bottom since it's likely to be faked.
0: There is one aspect of the book that just doesn't fit for me. The ticket was completely filled out. Why would the murderer, using it as a ruse, bother to fill it out? Just wearing a uniform and holding the book would have been enough. But the entire service ticket was filled out and then discarded where police could find it.
1: So with these books, does it have previous jobs in there as well, or is it just one piece of paper left at her house?
0: They've only released, and it wasn't left at her house, it was left outside in the area. We don't know what the previous ticket said, it just said the last one filled out. Was hers, and I don't know if this is a ticket that he would have left as a receipt for her so he wouldn't have had others in there, or if it was one that was filed with the company. Very little information about the book, except the picture of it's really been distributed.
1: Because, certainly, my thinking process, I thought if it was an actual book with previous jobs, I could go back through the previous jobs and then trace back who the employee was and what company they worked for. but. Based on that, it just sounds like it was just a single ticket.
0: Right. That's what it sounded like to me was that it was just the book and the only ticket filled out was hers. And it may be one of those receipt ones. We know that the book was fake or the ticket was because no company in the area could match the book, the service call or the employee number to an existing employee. It just seems like an odd clue. And you have to wonder if it was left behind to either taunt the police or to send them on a wild goose chase for a bit trying to track down some utility employee. Neighbors didn't hear anything, but two neighbors saw a man near her apartment. At least one saw this man at her front door. Police believe they may be describing the same man, only the descriptions are different, which we see with witness identifications. They both have the same rough age range, height, and weight, but one said he had dark curly hair that was medium length and that he was unshaven, but not a beard, just stubbly. Then the other witness said the man's dark hair was short, like a military cut, so medium length military cut, big difference, and that he had short sideburns, but no other facial hair. So those are some details that are pretty different.
1: We sometimes half-joke about the theory of the optimistic serial killer because it comes up so often in unsolved cases. It's usually at the bottom of our likelihood list because statistically speaking, it's the least likely scenario in most cases. But in this case, it seems more likely than usual. For one, there was the taking of a souvenir – That doesn't rule out someone she knows, but it's something serial killers sometimes do to remember a victim. Second, there appears to be a ruse to gain entry into the home. If it was someone Tracy knew, there would be no need for the whole service ticket ruse. And third, there was a serial killer in the area. Frank Duane Welsh was put to death for the 1987 murders of Joe Talley Cooper and Deborah Stevens in the same area. In at least Joe Cooper's case, he posed as a utility man to gain entry into her home.
0: The huge difference between the cases that Welch was convicted of and this case, Welch violently sexually assaulted the women he was convicted of killing. And there's no evidence Tracy was sexually assaulted. She was found fully dressed. There was no semen as far as has been reported. We can't. Rule out that rape was attempted. She was found on her bed. It's possible she fought back and was killed in the process of fighting back before a rape took place. Welch would have only been 19 or 20 at the time of Tracy's murder, and the other murders occurred six years later, so he could have evolved his methods. I mean, it's just as likely it wasn't Welch, but it could have been another opportunistic killer, or perhaps someone who had planned a rape at knife point that then turned to murder, or someone who was stalking her.
1: Or that he could have had the plan to rape her in the process of trying that she fought back. He wasn't expecting that, and he accidentally murdered her before he could carry out with his plan.
0: Like you already said, statistically speaking, it's more likely to be someone who knew her, but I still lean towards a killer not known to her. The odds that that ticket book is not connected is slim to none. It makes the most sense that a ruse was used to gain entry, and the ticket book was left behind to throw police off the trail for a bit, chasing down this phantom utility tech.
1: To me, if it wasn't a ruse, the person, the utility worker, would have come forward and said he was there because chances are he could have that information. He was there right around the murder. It does seem that it is connected because because no one's come forward. As far as solvability goes, look, unfortunately, short of a confession, after all this time, I can't see a resolution in this case. Like with Cynthia, there are too many unknowns and there's a real lack of evidence or witnesses in this case. The only witnesses give a vastly different description of who they saw.
0: The big difference between Cynthia's case and Tracy's case is that Cynthia's case was more likely someone known to her. And because I don't think Tracy's case is someone who knew her, that means it could be anybody and they don't know where to look. And There's not a list of possible suspects. So like you said, confession, I could see that. Or someone comes across that artist rendition of the missing keychain and realizes they know the person who has that in their possession. Other than that, you know, this one is going to be a really hard one to solve.
1: The problem when we talk about someone seeing the keychain, we're talking about a long time now. I think if anyone would see the keychain and recognize it, they would have come forward by now.
0: There is a $100,000 reward in this case for the arrest and conviction of Tracy's killer. And tips can be made to the OSBI at 1-800-522-8017. Hopefully, both of these cases will see resolution for the sake of their loved ones. Just a reminder, we do not have episodes next week. I'll be at CrimeCon. Come see me there. When we're back, we will be celebrating our two-year anniversary with the episode that you, the listeners, chose for us.
2: I want you to meet Daniel Bronstadt. Oh,
0: Over
2: here! He's a little strange. Some nights
0: I wake up and I think... It would be amazing to go on a flamingo hunt.
2: He lives in a rundown mansion.
0: Originally, this was meant to be a bathroom, but I've converted it into my bedroom. I just feel more comfortable sleeping in small spaces, and so I actually sleep in this tub.
2: And he also may have killed his twin brother, Chuck.
0: 911, what's your emergency? Uh, It's my brother. I, uh, I think he's dead. Okay, please calm down, sir. What happened?
2: This Sounds Serious is a new fictional true crime podcast from CastBox. If you like some humor with your true crime, then this is the show for you. It's packed with cults, plot twists, a weatherman, a boy band, and, of course, an unsolved murder. Yeah, he's dead. He's face down in his bed, and I'm, I'm poking him pretty hard here, and uh, it would be very unlike him to
0: not respond to this kind of poking.
2: Download This Sounds Serious wherever you get your podcast.